Joel chapter 2, verses 18 to 32. Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. The Lord replied to them, I'm sending you grain, new wine, and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea, and its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea, and its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely he's done great things. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals, for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vineyard and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains, as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. This is God's word. Thank you. Morning, uh, morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Matt Fuller, if we've uh, not met. We're at Joel chapter 2. We're actually going to go to the end of the chapter uh, uh, today just. And, uh, but let me pray as we look at this, uh, this section together. Our great God and Father, Joel, it's not the most straightforward book for us to read, both in terms of what's going on, but also just emotionally, uh, the journey that we read of, that you took your people through from devastation to restoration. Father, would we understand what this meant for them, so that we can understand what it means for us? Would we be those who can declare that we know that you are the Lord our God, and there is no other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there is always something wonderful about finding something which is lost. You, you lose something and it's oh, a bit of a nuisance. You lose your car keys. That's annoying. Uh, an hour later, that's desperate, uh, or whatever it may be. Uh, a little while ago, uh, a few months ago, I lost um, a pair of my father's cufflinks. My father is dead. The, uh, they're of no real financial value whatsoever, but emotionally, you know, it's just sort of tangible. It's a physical thing. Uh, and I was really gutted by that. And then last week in my wash bag, which I take on holiday, there they were, tied up in a sock, safe. Uh, put them in a safe place. Um, which is always when you lose things, isn't it? It's when you put them in a safe place. And uh, but there they were, hurrah! Uh, and um, it has a disproportional effect upon my mood, and my smile was there all day long, because something which was lost and was valuable to me had been found, huzzah! Uh, it's great. A bit more significant, of course, is a person. Uh, did you read, uh, just over two months ago now, three-year-old Casey Hathaway disappeared for two months, excuse me, disappeared for two days 
in the woods in North Carolina. She was playing in grandma's garden and just wandered off into the woods. And uh, the police came out. The whole town turned out to search for this three-year-old little girl. Drones, as is the modern way, flying all over. But they're trees. You can't see it. Whatever. Um, But uh, everything was out. The whole town, the whole village, everyone, they just couldn't find Casey. Until on the third day, uh, she sort of wandered back near to Grandma's house. Someone heard her crying, and she was brought in. And uh, amazingly, she said, oh, I've just been hanging out with a bear. Pretty weird. Uh, but um, you know, it was a little cold, needed some food, but found. I mean, how much extraordinary rejoicing. Two and a half days, you've lost this three-year-old little girl in the woods, and she just wanders out. Here I am, just hanging out with bear, like they do in the cartoons. Um, Something which is lost, but then brought back. You cherish it even more. You take your three-year-old, you love her, but you lose her for two days, then she's back. <gasps> you just, you wrap them up then, don't you? You don't want to let them go. You're, you're more pleased than ever. They're more precious than ever. When something has been lost, but then is found again. But what about a broken life which is restored? An empty life, a lost life, a wasted life, which all of a sudden is restored. Well, that is a precious thing. And here in Joel 2 is one of the many places in the Bible where it's obvious that that brings exceptional joy to the Lord. A life which is lost, which is wandered far from him, but returns to him, brings him great joy. And in being restored to him, that is a very wonderful thing. So here we are today in this second bit of Joel chapter 2, and it's a passage about the Lord's response when someone who has wandered returns to him. Here is the Lord's response to repentance put in those terms. Now, if you are just joining us, we're in the book of Joel. We've been here a couple of weeks, and for the last two weeks, it's not been, you know, well, I don't know how you put it, it's been slightly hard reading, I guess, because chapter one describes events of history. It's not entirely obvious when the date is. Maybe 500 BC is a sensible date to try and guess at, but anyway, events of history where God sends a plague of locusts against his people, Israel, to devastate them. So you just get a hint of it, uh, chapter 1, if you turn back a page, chapter 1, verse 15. When the locusts came, what was the cry? The cry was, alas, for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Has not the food been cut off before our very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. It's miserable. It's miserable. It's devastating. A locust plague took everything from them. Well, that was in chapter 1. But last time was the call to repent. The Lord said that this this devastation, this locust plague, it's like a fire alarm going off in your ears. You've got to do something. You've been just drifting along, but now, can I tell you, you, you've got to act. And and so the cry of chapter 2, verse 12, even now declares the Lord, return to me. We looked at this last time. Return to me with all your heart, fasting, weeping, and mourning. Return to me. And the turning point of the whole book is in chapter 2, verse 18, where we started the reading today. Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity 
on his people. Here's his response to the returning, to the repentance of his people. And uh, in the reading, there are two horizons. We had read uh, uh, chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. Well, that was 500 BC. That's the Lord's response, his immediate restoration of all that had been lost. That's chapter 2, 18 to 27. And then there's a second horizon, longer term, longer term. Chapter 2, verse 28 to the end of the chapter, verse 32. The promise of a future day, not 500 BC, but centuries later. So here are two responses the Lord makes to their repentance, and both are really concerned with knowing him. So the immediate one, we'll get to this later, but the immediate one in chapter 2, verse 27, why has God allowed them to go through this fire alarm going off of a locust plague, causing them to return to him, repent to him? Why has he done this? But verse 26, you'll have plenty to eat until you're full. You'll praise the name of the Lord your God who's worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then, then you'll know that I'm in Israel, that I'm the Lord your God and there is no other then you'll know that. It'll be different then. I'll allow you to go through this so you know me more deeply, more richly. And verses 28 to 32 at the end of the chapter again, they're concerned, as we'll see, with knowing him. So we're going to look at these two. We spend most of our time on, on the first because uh, really verses 28 to 32 we'll, we'll have to come back to again next week and look at them in chapter 3. So we'll only just dip into them today. But the two things then, the, the Lord restored all that was lost, verses 18 to 27, uh, and then secondly, the Lord promised to pour out his spirit. Those are his responses to his people when they return to him. The Lord restored all that was lost and he promised to pour out his spirit. As I say, most of our time then on this first one, verses 18 to 27, the Lord restored all that was lost. What does he describe? So first of all, I think you get the damage undone, verses 18 to 20. What's going to happen here? Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. Two ways of saying the same thing. And the Lord replied or answers them, I'm sending you grain, new wine, and olive oil. Well, in chapter 1, those were currently, those are the three things that were missing. Grain, new wine and olive oil because of the locust plague. So all that they'd lost in chapter 1, it's all coming back to them here. More than that, verse 19, enough to satisfy you fully. Better than having stuff is being satisfied with your stuff. You can be enormously wealthy but not satisfied. You can have as much food as our King Duff and Prince... Ben earlier, you can have all sorts of things, but if you're not satisfied, so what? You can be a millionaire, billionaire, but if you're not satisfied, nonsense, so what? We had a couple of days off last week. We were in the queue for a foot ferry just to go from one side of an estuary to another down in Cornwall. Uh, and the bloke in the queue in front of us, uh, he was a rambler, uh, and he had a didgeridoo. He wasn't Australian, but he had a didgeridoo. And um, we got talking to him, because if you're going for a walk to carry a didgeridoo, quite heavy. Not the most obvious thing. Carry a water bottle would be more useful to you. But anyway, we got to talk to him. And uh, so, well, I love walking, he said, and I love my didgeridoo. So I'm going to go for a walk and play my didgeridoo. I think, okay. And then he sort of played us a few, says, you know, what's this and what's the, what animal is am I playing now? And what's this animal? I don't know. We didn't quite, quite. But anyway, he, 
he clearly was a man who loved walking and, and loved his didgeridoo and was satisfied with that. There's something quite attractive about satisfaction rather than just... The Lord said, not, not only will I replace all you've lost, you'll be content. Ah, that is a precious thing. No longer an object of scorn, verse 17. They had been an object of scorn. Verse 17, the people had said, spare your people, Lord, don't make your inheritance an object of scorn. And, and so, verse 19, never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations, never again. And verse 20, the, the northern horde, this locust plague, the northern horde, I'll drive them far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea. Its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea. The stench will go up. Its smell will rise. Apparently that quite often happens to locust plagues. They end up going into the sea, drowning, and they stink. That is a known fact. Um, in other words, the threat is removed from you. Do you see these first few verses, 18 to 20, damage undone? The threat removed? your disgrace forgotten. And a consequence, verse 21 to 25, that then joy is restored. Uh, I think um, end of verse 20, he, that's the locust plague, has done great things. But verse 21, the Lord will do great things or greater things. So no need to be afraid. These three groups that had suffered, the land, verse 21, do not be afraid, land. The animals, verse 22, do not be afraid, you wild animals. The people, verse 23, be glad, people of Zion. All these groups that had suffered. What will happen to people? Well, be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God's. He's given you autumn rains because he's faithful. Abundant showers, autumn rains, spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. You see, there's plenty. The vats will overflow with new wine. Everything's sort of bursting at the seams. Plenty, plenty. Verse 25, I'll repay you. I'll repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. Years? Yeah, if you lose your crop, you've got nothing to plant the next year and the great locusts, the young locusts, the other locusts, the swarming locusts. We saw them in chapter 1. My great army that I sent among you. You'll have plenty to eat until you're full. You'll praise the name of the Lord who's worked wonders for you. Joy restored. Everything you've lost, replaced. And above all in verses 26 to 27, once again we get this phrase, never again. End of verse 26. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. Never again. Verse 19, never again will you be an object of scorn. Verse 26, never again will you be shamed. You will be no shame. Verse 27, never again will you know shame. Why not? Well, because here, verse 27, they now know more deeply than ever that the Lord is their God, and there's no one like him. There is no other. Okay. That's 500 BC. What about for you and me? Let me suggest four things, actually. Four ways you could take this. Four lines which may apply to us today. The first would be quite simply this. I mean, look, we're not... Israelites in the land of Canaan, for them back then, it was very clear. If you disobeyed, you'd suffer famine. If you obeyed, the land would be fertile. We're not in that sort of setting now. 
let me suggest four ways this may apply. First, I think here is a picture of someone becoming a Christian. So the Lord undoes the damage of your sin. The Lord removes the threat of sin and judgment because Jesus takes them for you if you're a Christian. There is enormous joy knowing that you're saved, no longer enduring shame for your sin, no longer fearing what might happen when you die. Jesus has covered all your shame. It's a mantra in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Hebrews, quoting Jeremiah. The Lord says, I will remember their sins no more. Never again. There is no shame. You come to realize that Jesus Christ is Lord and there is no other. So here is, in one sense, a picture of becoming a Christian. Secondly, let me push that a bit further. Here's a picture of what we've seen in the book of Joel. The Lord, the Lord will fight for your heart. Joel is a reminder that sometimes the Lord may fight against his people, deprive them of good things, so that we realize the pleasures of life are no substitute for him. So it is a striking verse, chapter 2, verse 27. I will allow you to endure loss, devastation even, so that you return to me, and then you will know. Then you will know, in a way you didn't know that beforehand, that in a way just much more deeper than before, much more deeply than before. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. See, that's why the Lord sent the locust plague, brought people to repentance. Now, let me say carefully, because we can't read life in the same way the Bible describes events of history. So let me just suggest or say this carefully. If, if you've been a Christian for some time but have drifted, so conscious of living with sin rather than fighting against it, half-hearted, drifting through life, not depending upon the Lord, not finding pleasure in the Lord. He may allow you to endure loss so that you return to him and recognize more deeply than ever before that he is the Lord and there is no other. Now, be very, very, very careful you can't read your life in the same way we can read of, read of events in history. Don't do that. However, the New Testament would say, acutely passages such as Hebrews 12, the Lord may discipline us in the Christian life, allow us to suffer loss. So look, if sleep goes and there are tensions at work and there are frustrations at home, you can't read them as the Lord's activity, but when setbacks come, disasters come, it's an opportunity to say, I'm at the end of my resources, Lord. I can't do it. I've got to come back to you. Help. You are the Lord and there is no other. So hear me rightly, you can't read the events of your life and know what God is doing but when losses come, it's always an opportunity to say, you're the Lord and there is no other. I've got nowhere to turn. 
Let me put it in these trite terms. Look, many of us will know the sort of low-level grumbling that comes from some, at some points in time, the frustrations about where we live. So uh, if you've lived in a flat or a house or an area for a long period of time, you know all the problems. You know them all. You sort of rehearse them every so often. This house, this flat, it's, it's too small, it's too far from the tube, it's got no garden, it's got no comfortable sofa, it's got terrible lighting, uh, it's got the wrong heating, it's got you know, the, the shower. You know all the problems with your flat, okay, when you've been there or, or your house a long time. You know all the flaws of it. But, but then you go camping for a weekend and your equipment is deficient. And you spend all weekend in a tent, in the rain, in a tent which leaks. Drip, drip, drip. And your sleeping bag is not the tog that you need. It's just cold. And you get about one hour's sleep over the whole weekend. And when you do wake up, there's a cow pat on you. And a cow just looking you in the eye going, moo. And you go home and you say, I love my house. I love my house. I love my bed. I love my hot shower. I love my dry roof. I love my house. This is a wonderful house. This is a brilliant flat. It's much better than I ever realized. Now, you know that sort of thing. That is a hopeless anecdote or, or, or illustration. In one sense, it's Israel's story. They take the Lord for granted. They moan about stuff. But when life is stripped back, all of a sudden they think, well, hold on a minute. The Lord is a wonderful place of security and pleasure. Of course, it's, it's a hopeless illustration because there are no flaws in the Lord. It's as if you return to your house and then all of a sudden you realize in a way you've never realized before that when you open these curtains, oh, look, there's a stunning picture of mountains with snow and a, and a, and a lift outside my bedroom window to take me to the top of the mountains. And then you open this window, it's on a beach where you can loll around all day in 26, that's the perfect temperature, 26 degrees, don't want it too hot, 26 degrees with perfect, with no, not a cloud in the sky. And then you open another window and it's perfect sailing conditions. And you go, oh, I never even noticed that these things are out of my bedroom windows. Sadly, not in central London. Um, but do you see? It's that principle. The Lord may strip you away until you come back to him as a place of security, safety, and you realize, oh, look, actually, it's more wonderful than I ever knew. So I've dwelled on that one, but in one sense, it's a key issue in the book of Joel. The Lord will fight for our, for our hearts. They allow us to suffer loss, so we return to him and realize that he is the Lord and there is no other. So in one sense, it's a picture of a Christian. Another thing to notice is the Lord will fight for our hearts, too, more, more briefly. Third, look at the promise that is here. The Lord will restore everything. Verse 25, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. What, what does he mean, repay? It's not the Lord's fault. The reason they've suffered loss is their sin. But he's saying, I'll restore to you all that you had and more. Now, I found that a very encouraging thing to think on this week. Because I don't know about you, but if, um, if you made mistakes, you regret. Or whatever's gone wrong, the Lord says, I will restore you, repay you. You think you've wasted years? Perhaps you feel you failed as a parent? You failed as a spouse, bankrupt, 
divorced, wasted years, decades of your life, living for just your own small dreams rather than the Lord. And the Lord says, now look, return to me and I will restore you. I will repay. So here, I think, is an encouragement to rejoice over the Lord's capacity in his grace to restore us. No matter what has happened, no matter what we've done, he's returned to me and not there are consequences for your sin, of course, but return to me and you can be more. I'll restore you. And last little thing, look, um, eventually, eventually, whatever we've suffered in this life, we will know never again. Verse 19, never again. Verse 26, never again will my people be shamed. Verse 27, never again will my people be shamed. Never again, never again. Whatever we've suffered in this life, eventually the Christian believer finds himself in heaven and knowing that all the losses that we've endured in this life will be swallowed up in the joy of heaven and never again is there anything to fear. Never again. As Revelation 21 will pour it, never again will my people be shamed. Never again will be there tears. Never again will there be mourning. Never again will there be crying. Never again will there be pain. Never again. Ultimately, you get to heaven and whatever you feel you've lost in this life, the Lord says, I will repay. I will restore. There's no satisfaction beyond anything you've known here and now. That's when all the damage is finally undone, all threats removed. Joy is restored beyond anything we've known here and now. So look, the Lord restored all that was lost by Israel. And you and I, we can know that now in part and fully in heaven. The Lord restored all that was lost. Secondly, then briefly, um, because we'll return to these verses next week, uh, verses 28 to 32, the Lord promised to pour out his spirit. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, this is chapter 3, and then what our chapter 3 is, is chapter 4. In other words, this is different. This is a different time frame. Uh, so verse 28, afterwards, this is not at the same time, this is later, afterwards, verse 28, the Lord says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. Well, two things are emphasized, I think, particularly here. That the Spirit is given to all people, and the Spirit is given to speak, the emphasis. The Spirit is given to all people. Do you notice here, it doesn't matter your, your age, your gender, your social class, all people. Broadly, in the Old Testament, God's Spirit is given to a few prominent individuals, kings, prophets, mainly God. Spirit dwells, or God dwells by his spirit in the temple. That's where you have to go to meet with him. Better a, a, a one day in your court than a thousand elsewhere, because that's where you go to meet with the Lord. Broadly, it's only a few individuals in the Old Testament. Now, all believers. What is a small trickle, a little tiny stream of God's spirit in the Old Testament is a flood. It's poured out when the Lord Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, ascended, and on the day of Pentecost, pours out his spirit on all people. And the spirit is given that we might speak. 
Slightly odd language, I guess, here in verse 28. Your sons and daughters prophesy dreams, visions. Uh, the backdrop, though, is in the book of Numbers. Often, if there's something we don't quite get in the Bible, it's because it's referred to earlier. Uh, the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 11. Moses is lamenting the burden upon him. Oh, I have to do everything around here. And so the Lord says, well, here are another 70 elders, and uh, they'll help you. And he says, well, that's good. But uh, Moses says, uh, uh, Numbers 11, verse 29, oh, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them so that they would prophesy and God would speak to them in dreams and God would speak to them in visions. Oh, okay, the language that's here. Moses say, oh, I long for the day when all of God's people have God's spirit within them. And God, they have an intimate knowledge of God themselves. They don't need me to explain everything to them. They know the Lord. God dwells with them. God speaks to them so that they can speak of him. Well, that's what Joel is talking about. That will happen, Moses. Then very briefly in verses 30 and 31, what else is going on here? Uh, it's obviously a day of battle as well. So Joel says, or the Lord says through Joel, I'll show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. We'll come back to this next week, but this is, this is warfare language. This is the Lord coming in judgment language. This is the plagues in Exodus fire and, and blood and darkness. It's that sort of thing is going to happen on this day. And so Joel says there'll be a day in history, not now, not 500 BC, that there'll be a day later in history where the Lord will do two things. He'll pour out his spirit in an unprecedented way and it'll be a day of judgment. Well, you turn to the pages of the New Testament and that one day becomes two. Will you briefly flick on to... Um, some will obviously know this. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, it's page 1093, 1093 in uh, the church Bibles. So Joel says there'll be a day, a day when God pours out his spirit on his people so they can speak of him in an unprecedented fashion. And a day when God judges those who have lived all their lives without returning to him. And the New Testament says that day is stretched. So it begins in Acts chapter 2. What do we want to call that? 33 AD, something like that. And the day ends when Jesus returns. But that one day is stretched out now. And so do you see uh, in Acts chapter 2, let me just read it again from verse 16. There's all sorts of phenomenon. What's, what's going on in Acts chapter 2? Well, let me read it. Acts chapter 2 and just verse 5. They were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans, how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Acts 2, it's a miracle of speaking. All of a sudden, this message of Jesus Christ goes to every language. And Peter says, what's going on here? 
chapter 2 of Acts, verse 16. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes them. This is the day when uh, the Spirit will be poured out. But it's also the day, well, verse 21, as Joel said, it's a day when everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This day of the Lord is stretched. It begins then on Pentecost. It ends when the world ends. And we live in between this period, these two. But now is the time to call upon the Lord. But Joel's main point in, in that is that, look, here is a day when God pours out his spirit upon all people and the spirit is given to speak. So overall, his response when his people repent, 18 to chapter, in Joel chapter 2, 18 to 27, the Lord will restore all that you've lost and you'll know him better than you've ever known him before. And 28 to 32 of Joel chapter 2, everyone will know him so they can speak of him. That's what happens when you return to the Lord. Oh, look, here's... Um, He's a little pleaser for one or two. Uh, some will observe uh, from their garments this morning that Liverpool won the Champions League last night, and many congratulations to them. Uh, their manager, Jurgen Klopp, is extraordinarily popular, so it seems to me well, he'll be a sainted now in, um, in Liverpool. But um, just with pundits, with the media, he's an incredibly affable, warm, sort of enthusiastic character. He's sort of self-deprecating. He comes across as, as a nice guy. Uh, and so the media like him. He says one or two slightly naughty things. He swore on TV last night. It's a little bit naughty. Gary Lineker said, oh, he's so happy. I'm not even going to apologize for his language. Um, but uh, he's generally a, a well-loved, popular sort of guy. Unusually for someone who's quite so prominent, he's upfront about his faith as a Christian. So uh, even an interview fairly recently with Gary Lineker, uh, he's very upfront about, actually, the most important thing to me is the fact that I'm a follower of Jesus. He said, Jesus Christ is the most important person in history. I'm, I'm so desperate to do the accent, but I'll get it wrong, and I'll just offend. But he's so warm in how he speaks. He's, he just comes and goes, Jesus Christ is the most important person in history. For me, this is an easy answer. At the end of his life, he took all the sins on himself and was nailed on a cross. So we don't have to do it to pay for our sins. This is a huge comfort. <laughs> um, but then he went on to say, or this is, slightly, uh, this is a different interview actually, to be a believer but not to want to talk about it. I don't understand how that would work. If anyone asks me about my faith, obviously I tell them. I give them information. It's a striking little line. To, to be a believer but not to want to talk about it, I do not understand that. I do not know how that would work. Well, I would suggest that is just the work of God's Spirit upon one man, according to Joel chapter 2, 28 to 32. One man there, one individual who knows the Lord and says, well, obviously I will speak of him. I know him so that I may speak of him. So there is the Lord's response then in Joel chapter 2. There's his response when his people return to him. He'll restore all that was lost, in part now, your shame removed, your restoration to usefulness, yeah, even now, but ultimately in glory. Threat is removed, shame is taken, joy is fully, fully restored. And he says, oh, 
when Jesus is risen and pours out his spirit, my people will know me in a way much more deeply, much more richly than even the Israelites could, and they'll speak of him. So here is the restoration, here is the promise when we return to him. Damage undone, joy restored, deeper knowledge. So return to him. You've never done so. Or if you're a Christian and you know there's something you need to stop, or you're just drifting, return to him. Let me lead us in prayer. Our great God and Father, we thank and praise you for the enormous encouragement here there is in Joel chapter 2. That when we do return to you, there is nothing mean-spirited, there's nothing uh, curmudgeonly about you. you. You are thrilled when we return to you. When one who has drifted, when one who has walked away returns to you, you rejoice. There's great joy in heaven. And these wonderful promises of you restoring years that were lost. And some of us here know that. We live with the sort of regret of years lost because of mistakes we've made. And your promise here that you will restore them to us. We can now be useful in your service. And that when we arrive in glory, all that has been lost will be swallowed up in the joy of all that we are given, all that we know there and then. Father, thank you for the knowledge of you. And for those of us who are believers, who know you deeply because of your spirit dwelling within us, would we be those who share this knowledge of you? We ask it in Jesus' name.